This is a Federal News Network podcast. The General Services Administration is breaking new ground with two of its newest government-wide acquisition contracts. Both the small business Polaris and the upcoming services multiple award contract will not have contract ceilings, meaning there will be no limit to how much agencies can spend under the contract. In his weekly feature, The Reporter's Notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why the decision was surprising, and Jason's here now to talk more about it. Hey, Jason. Hey, Jared. So what does having no ceiling actually mean? This is the first time GSA has ever put out a multiple word contract like Polaris, which is the small business government-wide acquisition contract that has no top-level ceiling, meaning GSA is saying this is not going to be worth any set amount of money. Like, hey, if agencies spend a dollar on it, that's all we can afford. That's all you can spend under it. Or in some cases, a billion dollars or $50 billion. And this is an incredible change from what we've seen over the last 25 years you know ever since the federal acquisition streamlining act fasa back in the you know late mid 90s when congress approved this use of GWAX, every other government wide acquisition contract every large government wide multiple award contract like uh alliant like if you remember uh, uh some of the 8a GWAC contracts like stars too have had these ceilings that really stopped or limited how much agencies could spend under it not at the individual task order level but hey after 50 billion dollars the ceiling the the contract is is no longer allowed to be used so if, this was a huge deal and it really caught me and probably everybody else in the community by surprise. And the reason why it caught us by surprise is we've been writing for the last, I don't know, about 18 months or so about Polaris saying, hey, this is worth $50 billion. This has an up to $50 billion ceiling. And Jared, I don't know if this came from a company like Dell Tech or Bloomberg Government that kind of made the estimate, or if it just was the rumor that got picked up. But Federal News Network and a lot of other federal media organizations have been reporting this $50 billion ceiling. And I got a email from our friends at GSA that said, hey, we want a correction. It's the There is no ceiling under Polaris. And I said, okay, uh, happy to do a correction. When did this happen? And as I started to do some research, I found GSA issued a class deviation to the federal acquisition regulations very quietly in March to remove this requirement for Polaris. So this is, this is a this is why it's a big deal. This has never been done before for a big government-wide acquisition contract. I, I can't think of any contract um, off the top of my head where there's been literally no ceiling in, in a multiple award setting. How does GSA explain the decision? Why are they doing it this way? What are the advantages? I'm going to give you the technical reason, and then we'll get into the non-technical reason. First, the technical reason, and, and this came from Jeff Kosas, who's GSA senior procurement executive. He signed off on the deviation, and basically FASA, Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act, which is now codified, I know you're keeping score, Jared, 41 USC 4103, right, actually says the solicitation for every task or delivery order contract shall, very important, include, among other things, the maximum quantity or dollar value of the services or property to be procured under the contract. But Jeff Kosas says in that far deviation that he's going to say Polaris does not need to have any maximum or minimum quantities based on the fact that that the IT category office at GSA's Federal Acquisition Service plans to issue on-ramps for new contractors at least every three years. Now, he writes, Kosas writes now, such on-wrapping opportunities don't need to cover all the pools because there'll be multiple award pools in under Polaris, like 8A or small disadvantaged business or woman-owned business, but should consider an annual on-wrap 
for each pool. So basically, there's a constant flow of new contractors coming in. And that way, as new contractors come in, they're not coming in at toward the end of the ceiling uh, and, and not able to really participate and get full dollar value. So that's how they explain it from a technical perspective. The other piece that I think is really important to look at is GSA had some challenges with the 8A Stars 2 contract hitting its ceiling. We also know that the Alliant 2 government-wide acquisition contract is also going to hit its ceiling potentially this year or in the next couple years, I should say. And they are already planning Alliant 3. So I think that's the other driver here. Okay, so that's the sort of legal explanation for, for how this all works. What does GSA say the reasons are as a practical matter? I think that's the key word, practical matter. And that's where actually I talked with Sonny Hashmi, the commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service. And he says actually GSA is using the authorities that Congress granted them under Section 876 of the 2018 Defense Authorization Act. You remember that one well. That one established the ability for GSA to not have cost at the master contract level and really only worry about cost or price at the individual task order level. Hashmi explains how this they're applying and why they're applying this 876 authority to Polaris and potentially the services Mac as well. Two or three things that historically have defined how we've done uh, large, you know, multi-agency or government-wide vehicles. There's always been a ceiling. On-ramps have been very few and far between. And minimums. And and and, and minimums. Yeah. And uh, uh, and and we we typically haven't had like we've always had price negotiation at the master contract level. All three of those things are done for the right reason. They, they kind of determine or like, are, are like follow well-trodden paths and the federal acquisition regulation. But all those three things many times come together to cause unnecessary friction and heartburn for the industry and for our customers. Ceilings are great for when you can have perfect predictability of what the future is going to look like. And we're living in a world where we can't predict. Digital is going to be a more and more central part of how the government operates. Organizations at state, local, tribal level are going to be going digital. Modernization is going to continue to accelerate, and like we don't know what the what the number looks like. So why come up with an artificial boundary that requires people to do artificial work at some point in the arbitrary future? That's Sonny Hashmi, the commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service. And basically, what Jared, what he's saying is, we don't need to have these ceilings anymore because they we have to raise them or think about them or worry about them. It's just not practical because you don't know the cost. As a perfect example, agencies are spending just about a billion dollars a year through GSA on cloud computing in 2019 and previously 2018. All of a sudden, the pandemic hits, and agencies spent 60% more money on cloud with GSA in 2020, $1.6 billion. There's no way that they could have an acquisition vehicle if they had a if they had one back then, which they, of course, did, that had a ceiling of, let's say, uh, $50 billion, they could reach that much more quickly because of, how, of, the, of a 60% increase. So they're worried about that type of thing happening again, whether it's a pandemic or just a new technology that spurs a lot of buying or any other reason. Also, they're trying to really market themselves to federal, state, local, tribal co governments who can use their GSA's contracts. So they want to make it easy and not, again, run up against the ceiling-like issue like they did with the 8A Stars 2 contract. I, I guess part, part of me is struggling here to understand why you would what, – what's the disadvantage in just ra raising the ceiling in the future when you need to? Because it, it strikes me that the advantage to industry of setting a ceiling – up front is that it's at least tied theoretically to some kind of forecast of what the spending is going to be, which would allow industry to plan toward that, even understanding that you might have to raise it later, right? 
there's two things I think going on here with the need to raise. It's not so easy. It, it, it requires a process. It, it takes time. It takes uh, effort. And I think what Sonny Hashmi is saying is why artificially guess what it could be when we really don't even know what it's going to be. It could be fifty billion dollars. It could be a hundred billion dollars. And you know, could you say, well, well just make it five hundred billion dollars? Well, what if you did that and then you have to raise it? So why bother if you really don't need to? He also talked about, and this is something else he told me, is the pricing doesn't really matter at the contract level, at the, mm. at the master contract level. Why bother trying to guess when really the important thing is at the task order level? Let's put our focus there and let's put our uh, energy at, at getting that right versus some arbitrary number that we're guessing. All right. What's the uh, industry reception been so far, so far as you can grasp? As you can imagine, I reached out to a bunch of people when I, one, got the question from GSA about the correction, but two, found this far deviation. And while no one was necessarily willing to go on the record about it, Jared, there a lot of people were surprised. And and I think I think the, the reason why they were surprised is when you have a law that said shall, right, they use the word shall, not may or will, but shall, mm-hmm. one federal procurement attorney said, hey, I don't see how GSA can even waive that maximum quantity dollar value requirement, given the language in U.S. Code 40. Another procurement official said, hey, if I was at the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, I'd want to ask GSA for a business case for this contract, because having no ceiling could harm small businesses by reducing this the means for competition, and could also increase the risk of bid protest because of unsuccessful bidders. So I think there are some concerns in industry. I'm not, I don't think anyone's saying don't do it, but they would like to see more information. And this far deviation, again, surprise people came out of nowhere, was unexpected. And now they're going to expand it not only to Polaris and the Services Mac. Uh, while Sunny Hashmi did not say this, I could see them adding this to the Ascend Cloud BPA that we wrote about last week as well, and, and talks about, you know, changing the way agencies buy cloud services and who knows what else is coming up on the horizon from gsa alliance 3 we've talked about that previously jared that that also i could see that also not having a ceiling so i think there's a lot more interest in this idea and how gsa came to that conclusion than they're giving letting on just through the far deviation that they released all right so yeah if gsa is not on completely firm legal footing according to the procurement experts that you spoke to, because as you suggest, you can you can use a class deviation to waive a section of the FAR. Can't really do it to waive a statute. Who would be in a position to sue or bring a bid protest under this? Who would be harmed by the decision to not have a ceiling? The question is, would an unsuccessful bidder use that as a potential way to say, hey, you did not follow the rules, and therefore I was harmed? Got it. I'm not a lawyer. You're not a lawyer. Who really knows if that would have standing if, if GAO or the Court of Federal Claims would even consider that a real a real case. But it wouldn't be a surprise to see a lawyer at least try to add that to a list of grievances saying, well, we thought our evaluations were unfair. Or we thought that there was a conflict of interest. And oh, by the way, you didn't follow the, the law. <laughs> so here's three reasons why this is a, a faulty procurement and you should reopen it and, and remove this and, and let us in. So again, I'm not sure that you can just protest based on not following the law per se, or how what how what harm would that do to an individual contractor? But I could see that as a, a bigger issue, one of many issues that a, a unsuccessful bidder would would throw against a, a protest. All very interesting, Jason Miller from Federal News Network. Thanks very much. Always a pleasure. And you can read more at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, 
beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader and what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and 
focus more on the people than than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.